0: Family, um, it wasn't really an announcement, but um, last week we had a slide up here with a QR code to support the Foursquare Disaster Relief, which is they're, they're efforting Hawaii significantly. Uh, so just a reminder, if you, if you have the means and ability and desire, if you could um, get on the Foursquare Disaster Relief website and maybe provide a little bit of support to, th- there's still thousands of people missing. It's, in, it's incredible. Um, so the effort is going to be extensive, uh, and if we can be if we can partner with that, God God can move in amazing ways. So, uh, as Darlene said, I'm Corey. Uh, Jonathan is not here. The Westvals are getting a little bit of rest and relaxation, doing some camping. I don't know how relaxing it is to camp with four girls, but he's trying. Uh, and can we can we thank the worship team that? That, uh, and it's, a, it's more difficult than it looks. <laughs> if, you've, if you've ever tried to play an instrument and sing at the same time, that takes brain power that I don't have, uh, being coordinated enough to stay on a click, listen to your harmonies, listen to the drum, make sure that you're in tune, and your voice is coming out in the same key that all the notes are being played in. It's not easy. So what they can pull off is amazing, and they love to lead us into a place where we can posture ourselves for worship. So, thank you, Becky. Thank you, team. Everyone that was up here, and it's nice that we're kind of unique in that we sort of have a bluegrass feel on occasion. So if you if you if you play steel guitar, can we reprie- recruit you up here? <laughs> All right. So uh, we've been. In the book of Acts, and we're continuing in chapter 16, um, picking up in verses 13 through 21, and we'll pray, and we'll get into it. So, Father God, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to come here today and worship you, to learn from you. Uh, We ask to be encouraged to follow your ways. We wish to grow closer in our relationship with you. So, Father, whatever you have for us to hear today, We ask that you open our hearts, open our minds, and let us walk out of here changed and closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So, so far, this is Paul's second missionary journey, and um, he and Silas are now venturing out from Antioch. They went north to Syria, um, Cilicia. They went to some cities that Paul visited on his first trip. They went to Derb, Lystra, Iconium, and in Antioch. And my ear is not the same shape as Jonathan's, so if you can't hear me, go like this so I can readjust this thing. I'm trying not to pay too much attention to it. Um, And along along their journey, they picked up Timothy, who who joined in um, with the group. So they went west into Phrygia, and Galatia, and then they they wanted to go southwest from there and go into Asia, and that's what they really wanted to do. It's what they thought they were being led to do, but as soon as they decided that's what they're going to do, God said, that's not what you get to do. Uh, In Acts 16, 6, it says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, so they got denied. Uh, They changed course. They started going basically due north um, with the intent of heading to Bithynia, and when they started covering ground and getting close to that, God told them no to that one too. So in Acts sixteen seven it says, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they suddenly found themselves without a destination. That's difficult, isn't it? <laughs> when you're navigating life and you don't have a picture of what you're supposed to do next. So they went west, head west, young man. They, uh, and... They went so far west, they ended up at the water. <laughs> you don't have any further, you can go. It's a, a place called Troas. It's a um, port city on the bank of the Aegean Sea, And I think Jonathan said last week, from um, Antioch to Troas was about a 500-mile journey, the way that they, their path took them, and it was probably 40-ish days of traveling. So I don't know about you, but that, that would be a very long time, 40 days plus, plus of, and all that physical exertion of walking that far, to get to stew on the fact that you got told no to doing what you thought you were supposed to do and going to Asia and then Bithynia. So for 40 days, they got to be curious where they were going and be upset that they didn't get to do the, the ministry where they thought they were supposed to do it. I, I related very much to the story that we got told last week of the repetitive no. Anyone else? Kind of struck a chord where my, my, life, my life was not how I wanted it, it's how he wanted it, and I didn't like that. <laughs> but sometimes you have to give up control, and being told repeatedly is a difficult uh, journey to walk through. When they got to Troas, uh, a couple of things happened. First, they met up with Luke, who's a doctor. And he was commissioned by a man named Theophilus to research into the life of Jesus. And what he was looking for was he wanted proof or disproof of Jesus if Jesus was who he said he was. So uh, Luke met up with Paul and Silas and Timothy and joined their group and began kind of his research journey into who Jesus was and how he lived his life. And you'll, you'll notice in Acts 16 between verses 8 and 10, there's a really subtle change in the pronouns that gets used. So uh, prior to eight, the, the missionary group gets referred to as them or they. And then after 10, the pronoun changes to us and we. So you can assimilate because of that, that Luke has now joined the party. And because he, he, there's a possessive to us and we, I'm involved with it. So you can understand that Luke is now... Authoring from a first-person perspective instead of from outside of himself. <clears throat> and the second thing that happened was Paul had a vision about the man from Macedonia. Dad, can you grab my water for me there, please? Uh, thank you. Um, so this, in this vision, a man from Macedonia appeared to Paul and said, come to Macedonia and help us. So finally, after a month plus of walking without a destination, they finally had direction. So they got on a boat, sailed out from Troas westward across Aegean Sea. They ended up staying the night on an island called Samothrace, and then they sailed from there to the port city of Neapolis, which is on the banks of Macedonia on the Aegean Sea. But they weren't done traveling. They still had another 10 miles that they had to walk before they arrived in a city called Philippi. And in Acts 16.12, it describes Philippi as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So that, that's where we're going to pick up today is from there. Um, but a leading city in the district of Macedonia. So basically, Macedonia is a state in, t- in comparison to what we have in America and a leading city—I wouldn't say that—that's necessarily a Seattle, but it's definitely like a Spokane or a Tacoma or an Olympia. It, it is—it's—it's it's important to the structure of—and—and and it is a larger than a, a rural uh, nowhere place. So, in verse 13. So, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts 16, and again, we're doing 13 through 21, and I'm calling the lesson "Same Coin, Different Sides." So starting at 13, on the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. We sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. She and her household were baptized and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and uh, stay at my home, and she urged us until we agreed. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the uh, future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and instantly it left her. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered, so they grabbed Paul and Silas, and they dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. So we start on a Sabbath, and we see them going outside the gates of the city to the riverside, and uh, why they thought that would be the place for prayer, I really don't know. Maybe their time in town, they heard rumors that that's where it was. Maybe it was spirit-led. Uh, maybe they just did a little research and figured it out, but um, but it tells us something. There's not enough Jews in this city to need a synagogue and or Romans weren't going to allow a synagogue to be here. So in any case, they had to get up and leave town if they wanted to worship God. Once they get to the water's edge, they find a group of women. And Paul, he uh, inserts himself in and says, do you have a minute for me to tell you about somebody that changed my life? He tells them about the gospel. So we're introduced to to one person in particular, and her name is Lydia. And it says she's a merchant who sells purple textiles or cloth, Um, and that really says a lot without saying very much at all, because purple in those days was prohibitively expensive, Uh, so much so that you would really only see it with nobility and ranking government officials. So with this being a leading city in the district of Macedonia and her selling pretty expensive stuff, you can assume that she is a successful business person and she's of high repute. Um, And we, we, after that, we learn that she owns a house. She owns a home. She's an anomaly. She's a woman who's a successful business person, a property owner, at a time when women were definitely second-class citizens. And it says that she worshiped God, which in some other translations says that she was God-fearing. And by that, we can assume that she wasn't Jewish because it would just say she was Jew, but it does not. Um, She's a Gentile, and she's aware of God, and she's searching after God. She is an anomaly (laughs) in more ways than one. Uh, Because of her heart's posturing, God moves her to access, accept the gospel news that Paul's talking about. And uh, I'm now in the pipeline to become a licensed minister in the 4 gospel. Uh, it's a process. Me and Harley and Darlene are all uh, in that same process. Now it's a foregone conclusion for them. As theologians, for me, it's gonna be more challenging. I still get to learn a lot when I'm, when I'm doing this. And if you ever wanna learn something really well, try teaching it to somebody else. So when when I was doing my research and my due diligence on this, I had no idea that the first convert of Europe was a female. Did you? (laughs) No, I I had no idea. And her story is really remarkable. Uh, She doesn't stop at receiving her salvation either. She leads her entire family to get saved. They all get baptized her faith, she did not allow her faith to be passive. And she immediately then decided, I need to put my resources to use for the kingdom as well. And she insisted that they stay at her house. Uh, It says, she urged us until we agreed. And I think think that says more about her excitement for what just happened, the change that just happened, than it does about the group's hesitance. Because they're in a place they do not know. This is their first visit over there. There's, you would expect some hesitancy from people before they just walk into other people's homes, right? So her insistence says a lot about the fact that I'm, I'm dedicating everything I have to this movement, and you're along for the ride. Uh, but it also says that she wanted to learn more and be an active part in the spreading of the good news. It's important to remember that her sal- salvation was not contingent upon her actions, But instead, her actions were a derivative of her being changed. If if our actions don't reflect the change that that we experience, are we really changed? And the spirit of, uh, it was the spirit that opened her heart to accepting Jesus, and with Jesus in her heart, she was no longer the same, and her actions reflected it. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll go outside the text a little bit to expound on her story a bit um, because it, it continues to get more amazing. Uh, her home became ground zero for the Philippian church. And it's presumable that she was a leader in that church. Paul's letter to the Philippian church was delivered to her home. This church is one of Paul's greatest missionary successes it was a gr- of really uh, high importance to him throughout his missionary work. Uh, I mean, it's even when you just read through the epistles, you can tell that the book of Philippians is a book of gratitude, love, and encouragement. A lot of the other epistles are correction and uh, straightening the path, making course corrections. This, this one is far more uplifting and encouraging. It stands out in that way. And the, church, the, the Philippian church even funded um, a vast majority of Paul's missionary work. So it was very important to him that the Philippian church became a thing, and we can all uh, thank Lydia for stepping out to make that happen. And as a four, uh, it was a blessed partnership between her and the Spirit. And as a four-squared church, we celebrate uh, empowering women in leadership ministries, so we should always remember the contributions of Lydia and even in the earliest, earliest days of the church. She kind of makes me feel like a procrastinator. (laughs) Uh, She accepts Jesus, takes the dip, uh, and then decides her house is where church is going to happen from then on all within two sentences of scripture. And I don't know that I've achieved what she achieved in 10 years of my life. Uh, (laughs) It it really makes me curious what difference I could have made if I hadn't resisted or pushed back on all those times when I felt the spirit moving me uh, but it also encourages me that when I do move in faith uh, the good things result from it and, and the challenge is, is worth it so moving forward in the text uh, Paul and the gang they kind of they find themselves finding um, encountering, a challenge. And it doesn't come in a way that one might imagine. They encounter this young slave girl who's possessed by a spirit of divination. And she just, she kind of gloms onto the group. <clears throat> and she starts shouting, She's, these men are sent from God here to tell you how to reconcile your life to him and be saved and live eternal life in heaven. She's yelling it. Not, I'm not going to yell at you. <laughs> uh, so on the surface, that kind of sounds like that might be something that you'd welcome, right? So, who does not like free advertising? And the, these guy, these guys had a mission. They were trying to save souls. What she was saying wasn't untrue. It was true. It was factual. The problem was the methodology in which it was happening and the motive behind it. And this story reminded me of one very specific person, (laughs) and I don't don't know his name, so you don't have to worry about me dropping names. Uh, If you've ever been to many Mariners or Seahawks games, you may have had an encounter with him. Uh, So while while the crowds are gathering to queue before game time and while the gates are still closed, uh, this gentleman will walk around, and you cannot ignore him. It's impossible. He has a 15-foot 2x4 strapped to his back. On both sides of that board are fire and brimstone messages all the way from the top to the top of his head. And he carries around a bullhorn that has, it's in a backpack, but it's got an amplifier that goes out each direction. It's a dual speaker, and he is, he's holding his Bible, and he's screaming in the microphone, You will burn in a lake of fire. You are wicked and cruel. You have no future. Everything you do is evil. This is at 120 decibels, and I am not exaggerating. He constantly shouts about judgment, condemnation, burning eternally in the lake of fire. He very rarely mentions, unless you repent. <laughs> Again, what he's saying is not false. It's it's the modality and the messaging that he employs that are completely counterintuitive, counterproductive to his intent. Never once, never once did I see anyone interacting with this guy positively. <laughs> and we were season ticket holders for several years, so it's not like we had a lack of a uh, nearness to him. We, we saw many people have to be restrained from assaulting him. Uh, what I did see were people that I know to be very strong Christians trying to take his obvious devotion for evangelism, his excitement, his energy, and turn it to love. And he never interacted with them. He would continue to shout in their face, as they get gave him wise counsel. And he would hand, him, uh, hand everyone that would stop in, in his path a card that had a little uh, website on it. I was never brave enough to go to it. I didn't want it to infect my computer with whatever he had. <laughs> but I- imagine standing out there, unless it was raining, there is no shade standing in queue for any of those gates. So you're standing in the hot sun. <laughs> You're being packed in like sardines. The the three million people behind you all think that the gates are going to magically open if they push hard enough. So you get to eat the person's back in front of you, and now you're trying to cover your kids' ears so they don't get damaged by this guy's yelling. And and you have to listen to this guy telling you, "Hey, you think it's hot today? Just you wait. It's coming, and you're burning." That's, we can all agree that that's not the right modality, right? (laughs) So, if if you are trying to get a job done and you're using the wrong tool, that job ain't getting done the way you want it. So, Warren Wearsby said, truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy. Using the parlance of our time, meaning today's vernacular, that is based. Anyone know what that means? <laughs> that's, that's an even younger generation than me. That, that word means I, I don't care how this affects you. This is my truth, and you get to hear it. In 1 Corinthians 13, it makes it very clear. Speech without love is nothing but Noise. It's the clanging of cymbals, the banging of gongs, or if you're Jonathan, it's the out-of-tune slapping of tambourines. Yeah. <laughs> it's annoying, and it's disturbing. And I, as I was writing this, I had, I had to look up this, um, that quote from uh, Warren Wearsby because it, it, the quote came to me without me ever having heard it. But it was twisted, so I'm going to give you the twist that I heard. Love, I'm sorry, truth without love is cruel. And love without truth is flattery. I'll say that again. Truth without love is cruel. And love without truth is flattery. So that, that's what I heard as I was researching this. And that brought me to that quote. So what's the slave girl's motives? Well, for starters, they aren't hers. She, she is possessed. So this demon has motives. I mean, you can assume that it's probably not love. That's not what their business is, right? It's a spirit of divination. And it, it may seem odd. Demons have a very orthodox belief structure, very orthodox. And they believe in God with massive fearfulness, tremendous fear so that's that spirit knew who paul's authority came from so why why would he start telling people this that seems really counterproductive to what a demon's mission might be but you have to consider the vehicle that was carrying it this girl was a slave You're talking the bottom rung of society's ladder, and she was female. So you're talking the society stature double whammy. (laughs) Maybe that, uh, oh, and she was a fortune teller. Witchcraft's never been viewed as an illustrious job, right? It's, It's pretty dark and seedy, even in the most uncivilized of eras. So maybe that demon was aware, hey, if we can make it seem that these missionaries are associating with this girl, no one is going to believe them. Their reputation is going to be damaged. Right? We are the company we keep. Well, Proverbs uh, is it 1620 says, the man that associates with the wise will become wise, and those who associate with the fool will suffer. Not, it doesn't say the f- if you hang out with fools, you're going to be foolish. It says you will suffer. That's, that's not a good intent. Don't hang out with fools. Just <laughs> fair warning. And that went on for days. Th- this this girl's yelling went on for days, and I'm curious why they allowed to go it on f- on for any length of time. But uh, you'd have to con- assume that it's compassion of some some kind. I'd, it doesn't really elaborate, but maybe they were actually f- they were actually grateful for the free advertising at first uh, until it escalated in intensity and frequency and. Maybe like Mr. Bullhorn, it was so disruptive that nothing positive could ever possibly result from it. Uh, But whatever the case, Paul's discernment uh, eventually kicked in. um, And after he was annoyed to the point of exasperation, he cast out the spirit with the authority of Jesus' name. So go ahead and give that a try this week if somebody annoys you. (laughs) Just be sure to report back how it goes next week. But in an, in an instant, she was set free from her spiritual bondage, and it gripped her. And, and her possession is very emblematic of the spiritual um, bondage that we, any of us can be ensnared by. And in our modern world, we, we may not see it, a spirit as something as explicit as a spirit of divination. But we see addictions. We see unhealthy relationships. We see mental health struggles. We see those those unhealthy thought patterns that can grip us. And they keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's grace. Just as that spirit was cast out, Christ can set us free. His name will, does, and always will bear the ultimate authority. Always. And our total freedom can only come through relationship with Christ. He can free us from our spiritual chains. And unfortunately for Paul and Silas, the girl's spiritual bondage also t- was tied directly to her physical bondage. And her fortune telling was a source of great income for her masters. And that well instantly dried up. And it was gone. It's not like you, Mr. Demon, come back. No, that's not the way it works. Uh, and there are very few things, even then, uh, that get people riled up like emptying a wallet. <laughs> I'm going to dig in your purse. What, what's your reaction going to be? And it's not, It's this intertwining between the spiritual and the, the physical bondage is not, it's not ironic that we all, they're very frequently related and intertwined and often Our worldly desires interfere with us living out our faith, don't they? Remember what Jonathan said a couple weeks ago, that money and possessions can be good, bad, or indifferent. They aren't inherently evil or sinful. It's how they are used and what value you give them in your life that makes them problematic. So in this case, the money that was being generated from this girl's affliction was far more important to these slave owners than their <laughs> salvation was. And, and you'll notice, they, they had no issue with, with them up to this point. They had no issue with the missionaries being in town until it impacted their bottom line. There were no protests. There were no attempts to intervene by the re- citizenry. Uh, it says that the men shouted... The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. Really? (laughs) Then why haven't we heard of this before? Could they be exaggerating a little bit? The men then brutalized Paul and Silas. In this translation that I read today, it just says that they dragged them to the magistrate. And the magistrate would have been in, in the market. They dragged him to the marketplace, which would have been in the center of the city. So basically it's saying we put them in a place where everyone could see them. It was a very public display. And they wanted the magistrate to punish them even further. In some translations, though, it says that they beat them and bludgeoned them before dragging them. So they were, it was, it's not like they were kind. It wasn't just, hey, come with me. There was some revenge involved before they took them for even more justice. So I'm willing to bet that we've all formed a pretty unfavorable opinion of these masters, haven't we? Why? Why is that? Because they were slave owners? I'm 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 telling you that was normal back then. It was normal. And some slaves and owners had really good relationships. Was it because is it because that they went brutish on Paul and Silas? They beat him up a little bit? We're not talking about today's justice system, guys. Is it because they profited off of someone else's bondage? You ever worked for a company? Ever? <laughs> That's kind of what they do. What if they had no other source of income? Would they now be destitute? What if they had families that they loved and supported and were now fearful for their well-being? Are we capable of seeing them through a lens of sympathy and compassion no matter how misguided their actions are? We never overreact when we're surrounded by emotions, do we? (laughs) No. Well, I'm going to confess. You can confess to me later if you want, but I'm going to (laughs) confess. And you you have to trust me when I tell you I don't want to tell you this story. I'm, I'm still working through a lot of trauma related to what I'm going to tell you. But when I was working on this lesson, I got steered by the Spirit in a completely different direction than I wanted to go. I went from going to Bithynia to Troust. I had I had zero intention of portraying these men as anything but wicked. That's simple. That's the way they're laid out. Why not just follow that path? Maybe it's part of my healing journey. I don't know. Maybe it's someone needs to hear it. But I'm trying to be like Lydia. I'm trusting. I'm stepping out. In July of 2021, America and I became parents. Matthew came early. <laughs> he wanted everyone to meet him. And if you, know our, if you don't know our backstory, we were 10 years in the waiting for that miracle. So when I said that I related to that story of getting told no repeatedly, I wasn't kidding. I got told no for 10 years at great expense Financially, mentally, we lost children along the way. So you can imagine how wonderful that moment was. I was a dad and Merrick was a mom. We were elated. And if you got text messages from me in that time period, you probably remember how many exclamation points there were. I was just, everything was exciting. I was in love with my, my life at that point that's yeah, Kermit would, would do. Less than a month later, I got told I was going to get fired from a career that I loved for 22 years unless I acquiesced to government mandate and put experimental pharmaceuticals in my body against my will. We're a one-income family. We now have an an infant. And we live in a multi-generational household with my parents. Take one guess. I'll give you two, but you'll need one. What my instinctive reaction was. I wanted to find the man who made my life miserable... Beat the crap out of him. Take him somewhere public and show other people what he did. I didn't. I didn't. It would have made the news. <laughs> <laughs> and I apologize for using the c word up here, but uh, that's genuine. I I wanted to get vengeance. I wanted vengeance, and it consumed me. But and that's not where it ends. I think I think pretty much anyone here can nod their head in understanding that when your world gets shaken you have invasive thoughts, right? Everyone can say yeah that's happened to me. The greater problem for me was I let my attachment to my worldly ways interfere with my faith. I didn't want to be anywhere near a house of worship. I didn't want to pray. I didn't want to be prayed over. I didn't want to cry out to God for guidance. Or ask him for mercy. I wanted vengeance. It consumed me. Living with PTSD like I do is a challenge of all of its own most of the time anyways. But when you get buried in an avalanche of triggering circumstances, oh boy, your vision gets narrowed. You become target focused. Interacting with people becomes difficult because every stimulus becomes a fight, flight, or freeze response because your brain is in survival mode. Coping becomes desperation. And daily operation is pretty much impossible in a healthy sense, anyways. And every day becomes a fight to survive mentally. I'm not there anymore. Praise God. I'm not 100% either, as you can tell. What happened changed me. And I'm still working on forgiving a few certain people. It's not easy, and I'm not without flaw. And I hope that we can all acknowledge that sometimes forgiveness is a process. Luckily, handing that process over to Jesus has made it easier and healthier. Amen? So all that to say perhaps our rush to judge someone for their actions, slave owners, we may just end up pointing that very same finger back at ourselves. Everything, everything looks different when viewed through the optics of loving our fellow man the way Jesus loved us. Everything changes when you view that. Some people just make it harder than others to do that for them. When Paul turned around and cast out that spirit, he may have been upset at the nuisance of the slave girl's incessant hollering, but the act the act of casting the spirit out wasn't done in, in rage. It was out of compassion. He, he was genuinely disturbed by the little girl's spiritual, spiritually oppressive state, and he wanted her to be free. God's grace released her. So there is a Laundry list of lessons to pull out of this, and it never ceases to amaze me how much life application you can pull out of eight verses of scripture. But uh, we'll break it down by characters because there's lessons to take away from every character in this story. So we'll start start with Paul and Silas. They were heeding the call. They exemplified their obedience by heeding God's call to spread the gospel. Their journey started with a willingness to go where God led them, even if it meant stepping into the unknown. In our lives, too, God may call us to unfamiliar places and situations, inviting us to trust and obey. Steadfast in adversity. In spite of facing challenges and oppositions, Paul and Silas remained steadfast in their commitment to share the gospel. When they cast out the spirit from the slave girl, her masters became enraged, beat them, and dragged them to the authorities. Even in the midst of this adversity, they did not waver in their obedience to God. And when Jonathan picks up next week, he'll, he'll make it pretty clear how much they actually did suffer and they how obedient they remained. Uh, compassion and transformation. Paul and Silas's obedience led to the transformation of Lydia's life and the release of the enslaved girl from her spiritual bondage. Their actions demonstrate the profound impact of obedience on the lives of others. Our obedience, too, can bring about positive change in the lives of those around us. Could you inspire the next founder of the Philippian church? It's remarkable, isn't it? So let's talk about Lydia and God's sovereignty in salvation. Her conversion highlights the role of God's grace in opening hearts to receive the gospel. It underscores that faith is a gift from God and that our response to God's call is a result of his work in our lives. There's inclusivity in the gospel. Gospel. Lydia's background as a Gentile and her involvement in the trade demonstrate that the gospel message transcends culture and social boundaries, and we've talked about that many times, but it bears reminding you. Her conversion highlights the inclusivity of the gospel, which is meant for people from all walks of life. Leadership and hospitality. After her conversion, Lydia demonstrated leadership and hospitality by inviting Paul and his companions to stay in her home. Her generosity and willingness to open her home to these missionaries created a base for the early Christian community in Philippi. Impact. Her conversion and her role in supporting the mission of Paul had a lasting impact. She had a pivotal role in the establishment of the Philippian church, which became one of the earliest and most significant Christian communities. Who knows what the trickle-down effect of a single salvation can be? And women in leadership ministry, as we touched on before, her, her story is one of several examples in the New Testament that highlight the important role that women played in the early Christian church. Her leadership challenged the traditional gender norms of her time, but honestly, they would challenge the, <laughs> the norms of some churches today. Thankfully, we are not amongst them. Amen. So we'll move on to the uh, the slave girl. Spiritual bondage. Her possession by a spirit of divination represents a spiritual bondage that can grip any of us. Her situation reflects the reality of spiritual forces that are at work in the world, both seeking to undermine the work of God and to exploit people for personal gain. There was a clash of worldviews. The space between the girl's repeated proclamations and the message that Paul and Silas were preaching represent a clash of worldviews. While her words were accurate, they were rooted from a false source. This demonstrates the importance of discerning spiritual influences and seeking the truth of Christ. Deliverance and freedom. Paul's act of casting out the spirit from the girl emphasizes the power of Christ to bring freedom and liberation from spiritual bondage. This event showcases the authority of the name of Jesus and the transformative impact of encountering the gospel. Hallelujah. And lastly, we have the slave owners. Conflict and persecution. The casting out of the spirit led to conflict between them and Paul and Silas. And the masters were enraged at the loss of source of income. So they took matters into their own hands before dragging them to the authorities. And this shows us that any time the church sees success and progress, the enemy is going to respond. They're going to disrupt, they're going to challenge. And we'll almost always face opposition and challenges in our mission when we we're trying to spread the gospel. Resistance to change. Transformation comes with resistance often, oftentimes. Uh, this incident exposes that there is, there is a tension between the transformative power of the gospel and the uh, resistance of the, the worldly systems that are in place that want to control everything. it's exploitive. It's exploitative of people for personal gain, and and we're likely to encounter that resistive force when we seek to break free from our worldly chains and and embrace Christ's liberating truth. And reacting out of emotion. These slave owners may very well have been really decent guys, but their reaction to their extreme emotion left them forever memorialized in a negative light. So we would do very well to think back on them anytime we We want to lash out uh, because of circumstances that are beyond our control. So Lydia and the slave girl represent two very different sides of the same coin. One embracing the transformative power of faith, while the other embodies the darkness of exploitation and oppression. It's an extreme dichotomy, and it's not coincidental that they appear within a few lines of scripture from one another. It's meant to call us to reflect on our own lives and choices. Are we like Lydia? Are we opening our hearts to Christ's message? Are we like the slave girl's masters clinging to worldly gain at the expense of our relationship with God? Are we welcoming and receptive to transformation? Or are we held captive by our worldly pursuits? I pray that we can all be like Lydia and embrace the gospel with open hearts. Allow it to take root and bear fruit. And I also pray that we can be like the slave girl and experience the liberation that comes from encountering Christ breaking the chains that bind us and empower us to live lives of freedom and purpose. And it's, it's interesting to note that um, the slave girls never mentioned again anywhere, uh, but all the uh, dissertations and the writings from theologians that I went through to, for this, they all kind of make the same assumption that she became a part of the Philippian church. And I wish that for everybody. Wow, what a transformation. Slave in more ways than one to saved for eternity. So, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for gifting Luke with the ability to capture so much ma- meaning in his writings. And like I said, I'm amazed at how much you can say in so few words. So, Father, let us keep those words near as we leave here today. In Jesus' name. Amen.